welcome to One Day Contract, the Panthers talk show where each week we're joined by a new personality who we've signed to a one day contract to join the show. One Day Contract is a proud part of the Riot Network. Follow us on Twitter at the Riot Network to stay up to date on all of your favorite pods. Subscribe, rate, love us on iTunes. My name is Nikki Wolf. With me, as always, Josh Klein, managing editor for the Riot Report, co host of It Is What It Is rested and relaxed after the bye week and is excited to really see what we've got in some guys off the bench over the last four games of the season. A lot of positivity and optimism. Yeah, that, was that? I feel like this last four weeks, we're in an evaluation period. We're going to be really taking some time. We're going to bring in some guys. Vincent might be coming in to take my spot. Um, we're going to bring <laughs> in uh, – we might bring in uh, T-Bone uh, for Nikki. And, um, and I'm thinking uh, maybe, uh, maybe Kelsey Riggs taking a step back and, and subbing in for Colin. So a real gender swap, but I, I think we're going to make some moves and, uh, and just see, just see what happens, you know, like just to see, just to give some, you want to see what you got in these guys, because we know what we've gotten me, not a whole lot. I know that you guys are obviously, it's like the CMC and the, um, the Brian Burns of the one day contract episode here with you two. But when you come to me, I'm like, uh, Hmm, I don't know. What what's a maybe like a I'm trying to think? I don't want to say Tahir Whitehead because I feel like that would be I would be really underselling. Maybe like a Matt Paradis, you know? Yeah, like I can I had, see you I had some a Trey moment. Boston. Have, you, have you been Boston introduced, hair. sir? Have you been introduced? <laughs> Keep it down. This is my segment, and I like to compare myself to Big Boosie John Miller. That's who I am. Big Boosie. <laughs> big Boosie. They call me Big Boos. Big Boosie for the big dog. Uh, that voice that you heard in the background there, Colin Hoggard, columnist and contributor for the Riot Report, is focused on taking the momentum we build over the next month into next year, hot take-wise. I'm you know, ready I'm, for this. I, I just have to say I'm disappointed in myself. Um, it would come off a bye week and I, I false start right out of the gate. Like, that's unacceptable. I'm a veteran. There's no excuse for that. You just got, I got to take the five, walk back to the huddle. It's like a delay a game out of a timeout. You know, you just can't do it, buddy. Like, these are just, just not, you know, this is the kind of mistake that you can't be making. I'm not Brian in an evaluation Vo- period. Like, I got Kelsey Riggs right here on the phone. Like, don't, don't make me call, uh, don't make me call Nick Wilson. Like I'll get him out here. He's gone. I'm Brian Hoyer trying to make plays with my legs out here, you know? (laughs) Well, on the one day contract this week is actually, oh, he's he's not here. Yeah, no, he's not here. Where is he? No. Uh, Colin and I had a great conversation with Frank Frigo. He is the uh, co-founder of Edge Sports. That's EGJ Sports. Uh, it's part of Football Outsiders. Would really recommend that you stick around for that. It's at the end of this, uh, at the end of our segment, we're going to yell at each other uh, about some nonsense for a while. And then uh, what they do over at Edge Sports is incredible. Uh, it's very analytic based. And they have, they just came out with their uh, head coach rankings that they update Uh, They start them after week 12 and then they update them weekly. And we had to talk to him because Matt rule 30th out of 32 coaches, according to edge sports, um, which go dives into a lot of analytics and the way that he handles fourth down calls. Uh, Apparently they don't like fake punts over at edge sports. (laughs) Who knew Uh, (laughs) the numbers do not value fake punts. Um, And just, he, he had some really interesting things about the way that analytics uh, contribute to the NFL. And, uh, and the way that Matt Rule uses those analytics and just, uh, just an overall really smart, really, really smart guy. And that, of course, is going to happen in the future. In about 45 minutes, we'll be talking to him. 
we have not already talked to him. That would be crazy. We can't just record stuff and then put them together out of order and then put them in your ear holes. All this stuff is happening live when you press play, when you press that little triangle button on your iPhone. It makes me uncomfortable when you say ear hole for some reason. Really? It's such a weird term. Could be why I've got a lot got a lot worse things to say if you'd like. Most of them have the word hole in it. Oh gosh. Uh, well, I'll try and dig us out of this one real quick. Frank had some great things to say about the quarterback position. Um, and, and I think really how good, how much can a good quarterback help, help it's an average team. There's lots of different nuggets in there from, from Frank, um, some Panther specific stuff. But I think uh, any, any, whether you're analytics um, fan or not, I think there's a lot of stuff you guys could pick up on. And I think it's one of our more educational interviews. Sure. We like having smart people on cause they make us seem smarter. Yeah. I mean, we do edutain do they? here. Mm, do they make us seem something? <laughs> well, I'm the one putting the tinfoil hat on in about 20 minutes. So just let's just keep talking. <laughs> we'll just wait for that. Oh gosh. Okay. Before we get to that, let's just do a, a very quick, super important question. Tell me, wh- what did you do for the bye week? Give me something good. We put up uh, Christmas decorations, of course. Yay! Are you a fake tree guy or a f- uh, real tree guy? Oh no! Oh, Over no. at the Hoggard House. Oh no, this is actually the first time I've, I've always been a late buyer of the tree because um, I worry about the tree drying out, but I've been pressed um, by, by some loved ones to get the tree up early. I think that, you know, this year being what it is, people want to rush into the spirit and I'm, I'm here for it. So we're trying it out. I'll report back on how the tree makes it. But yes, we are a live tree household. Uh, I, we, I will tell you this for the first time in my life, I think that's not true. And the first time in my married life, uh, my wife and I have a Christmas tree up, uh, as we, as you may know, may or may not know, uh, I'm a Jew, uh, one of the, of the Jewish persuasion. And, uh, we have a, a tribe. I thought it was a tribe, not a persuasion. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Part of I'm a Red Sea pedestrian, if you will. Uh, I think that they, um, so we decided to have both a menorah and a Christmas tree because I love the Christmas season. I may be, uh, I may be Jewish, but Nikki is losing it right now. <laughs> yeah, I've lost it. I'm sorry. I There's almost... so much to love. I think, I think, I think I would love to celebrate more holidays. I'm not looking to shut holidays out. I'm trying to be holiday inclusive. If you have special treats that you make on holidays that I don't know about, but I might like, oh, you better believe I'm interested in your holiday. Bro, if you're a Christian, and I would just, uh, just all listeners out there, you might want to look into the holiday of Sukkot. It's a great one for, for Judaism. You build a little tiny house off the side of your house. You shake a lulav. You smell an etrog. You have a nice outside meal. It's very fall, festive. I, it's just nice. I would look into it. Sukkot. Sukkot. S-U-K-K-O-T. Check it out. When does that happen? I have no idea. I, uh, <laughs> I don't celebrate <laughs> I was right. ready to write it down. Okay, I'll look it up. Don't worry. Yeah. We have the Google. Well, mm. it sounds like you had delightful holidays. Uh, my fridge died, and we got a new fridge, only to realize that it is dented because they didn't look at that before they brought it up into the house. So now I get to get another new fridge. Yikes. I was, I was worried that fridge was a dog for a second. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's you're like, a it good was dented. I was like, oh, it's, it's, a, it's the actual refrigerator, not fridge. Oh, no. oh fridge. <laughs> We also yeah, got no. a friend's advent calendar. Check this out. Well, is that cool or is that lame? I don't know. That's the reason for the season right there. That's right. Where did you get it? I would say uh, Amazon or Target, one of those two. Um, just as an example, one of the things, it's a pivot sticker. There it is right there. 
Okay, that's, that's probably the most important thing that you're going to learn from this write, podcast write today. Write that down, friends, <laughs> Advent calendar. It's my favorite show of all time. I'm sure that won't How are you the anybody. one giving good Christmas gift uh, recommendations? This is, everything's broken in 2020. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> or it's pretty much just par for the course of 2020, yeah. I think you would say. <laughs> all right, let's jump into football talk. First, let's talk about this COVID list. Panthers now have six starters on the COVID list. Are you worried about this game on Sunday? What are your thoughts on this? Josh, we'll start with you. Sure. So, yeah, so already last week, the Panthers had placed uh, Bruce Hector. He's a uh, defensive tackle on the practice squad, as well as, um, as well as Ito Gross Matos on the COVID-19 list. And then yesterday, Monday, they placed the following uh, DJ Moore, Curtis Samuel, Greg Little, Derek Brown, Zach Kerr, Shaq Thompson, Ishmael Hammond, who's on the practice squad, and then Mike Pilardi, who is um, – uh, on injured reserve, which was, I'll get into the rest of them for a second, but I actually didn't realize that that Pilardi had to test himself every day. And, but he obviously does. I've seen him at the stadium a couple of times when I've gone in for COVID testing and, um, and kind of exchange, exchange pleasantries, but that makes total sense just because you're on IR doesn't mean you're not coming in for treatment and stuff. So, um, uh, it was either, I'm actually not a hundred percent sure whether it was rap sheet or, um, or Schefter that reported that DJ Moore had tested positive. Um, but I think a lot of these guys are close contacts. So the way that it works with the NFL and the Panthers is that they are neither required nor are they going to reveal whether or not any of these players actually tested positive or whether they were just come, came into close contact with somebody that had tested positive. So say, for instance, um, you are uh, Shaq Thompson and you have a – you have, you have a, uh, a uh, I think his daughter is four. So you have a four-year-old. She goes to daycare. COVID-19 COVID makes its way through there. Shaq Thompson has then had close contact with somebody that has tested positive. He's, he's going to have to go on the list. Whether And then also if he, let's say that DJ Moore does test positive, which I'm not saying that he has, but if the reports are true, which he has reportedly test positive, if he tested positive and he was in a team meeting or even watching film or working out with Curtis Samuel for enough time for that viral load to pass. Uh, I, wrote a, I wrote a story earlier this year about the Connexon contact tracers that they have, that all the players and all the staff and all the coaches and everybody inside of Bank of America Stadium, inside the Panthers facility, they all wear these contact tracers. I'm sure you've seen them if you're listening to these podcasts. Um, so they can tell not only how close they are, but whether they were facing each other, if they're breathing the same air, just like incredible amounts of detail. So if you, if the contact tracer says you've been in close contact, then you have to go on the list until you test pot, test negative uh, a, a number of times. So I, I think that the, the overarching theory that all of these guys have COVID-19 and that all of them are going to miss the game on Sunday may not be true. It could be true, but I it may not be true. So it's hard to jump to conclusions about who will and who will not be there on Sunday. Um, but uh, my thing is, you know, obviously it's a, it's a disease. We can get caught up in the numbers sometimes and the fact that they're, uh, that you really need DJ Moore in there because you're a fantasy team. But, um, you know, nobody, you don't want anybody to have this disease. And if they do, you want them to be asymptomatic and recover quickly. So that's my, I want that to be the main point that I, uh, get into this little monologue and that's it. I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> there you go. Is that a first? Probably. 
No, I'm not. I'm not an expert on this stuff. I'm not one. To, I, I, I'm a guy that talks likes talking football and talking sports. Josh is doing the doing the doing the right thing and and getting the information out there. But I just don't have a whole lot to add to it. I'm staying my lane. I think don't worry, Colin will make up for it later. I'm sure. <laughs> He's got a lot to say. If all eight guys of those guys, if and I will say because I think a lot of people, um, Tom Pelissero, I think reported today, which is Tuesday, through the magic of the internet, that. Um, uh, he reported that they had no positive tests overnight, which is definitely a good sign. I think some people were a little worried that maybe there was going to be no game on Sunday. We have seen from the NFL that unless you have positive tests up to Saturday, they don't want to move that game. So, uh, you know, as we saw with the Broncos, who had to roll out a practice squad wide receiver at quarterback, um, they don't they don't care if you are going to be put at a, at a, at a disadvantage. They don't care that three of the four defensive tackles on the roster uh, are on the COVID list. They, they don't care. So um, they, they unless Steve Bashotti pitches a fit and then they kind of care. Yeah. Well, obviously, unless one of them is Lamar Jackson. Um, but yeah. I, I think that they, um, I, I don't, I don't think that the game on Sunday is in jeopardy. Please don't quote me on that when we get to Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> so, Pending the game is happening. Are we going to see CMC out there? And what about Dante? What's the latest with them right now? Uh, yes, but to both, I think. CMC for sure um, is going to play, obviously, barring some sort of a setback. Um, and I think that the kind of that, like, the rumor mill, or not the rumor mill, but, like, that thought process that went around about CMC and Christian McCaffrey not playing um, on Sunday or shutting him down for the rest of the season – that was just never going to be an option. Like he was just never going to say, I, "I'm I'm good." Um, he has been he has been itching to come back, so he certainly is will be there on Sunday. And I'm sure, uh, I'm hoping will not take 99% of the snaps, but you just never know. Yeah. And for a well compensated leader of a team, I, I applaud him. That it should not have been a question. I think it's good that he's coming back. Um, he, you know, he's missed a lot of games. But he, this team, at its best, is going to be when he's at the center, uh, the centerpiece of it. And I think it, I think it would be a uh, kind of an uh, NBA player move to just kind of sit the last four out. So kudos to him for it. Yeah, we, we talked to him on Monday uh, via Zoom, and it was he he was asked directly if he had ever thought about taking the last four games and just sitting them out. And his he just no. And I, and I think it's good for him, too, to get some positive momentum. And we know this is a guy who's a workout warrior in the offseason. You want him to have, feel, you know, give him that purpose again. Let him remember why he's putting in all those, all those hours. So um, I know you can, you can go through life scared, but I'm glad he's playing. Yeah, I think that you also, and we've talked about this a little bit before, you can, it sounds so dumb because it's like this season, nobody even remembers last season. I mean, that's not true. Everybody does, but you you can really use these last four games to like propel yourself into next year. And I think that that is what you couldn't do it last year because Perry fuel was not going to be the head coach. Cam Newton was not going to be the quarterback. Uh, Luke Keekley was not going to be the linebacker. Well, we didn't know that then, but we know that now, um, you know, you knew all of these changes were coming down the pike. So you couldn't use the last four games to kind of propel yourself and build something for this year um, other than a good draft pick. And so, but this season, it's the same. It's going to be the same coaching staff. You're prob almost I'm probably going to have Teddy Bridgewater back for another year. You're certainly going to have this whole entire young defense um, back. They have, I believe, they have the third or fourth fewest snaps from 2020 uh, that they'll be 
in, on defense that are hitting free agency next year. Um, don't ask about offense, but on defense, that this will be a very continuous unit. So I, I do think that you're going to see a lot of um, a lot of continuity. So you can build going forward, and I, I think that Dante Jackson and Christian McCaffrey are, are going to be a part of that. You just talked about that that continuity and people coming back. What about Taylor Moten? Is he coming back? I saw a lot of discussions. I think you were involved in some on Twitter over the past few days concerning this topic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think that a lot of people may have gotten confused with whether or not I was uh, controlling the free agency of the Carolina Panthers because I, I just want to make it clear that I don't get to make the decision on whether Taylor Moten comes back or not. Um, and, and you know what else, which is crazy, is that Technically, Marty Herney doesn't get to make the decision whether or not Taylor Moten comes back, and Matt Rule doesn't either, and neither does David Tepper. You know who gets to make the decision is Taylor Moten. Taylor Moten is the one that makes that decision. So a lot of people say, why don't they sign? Why don't they sign him right now? And if you're Taylor Moten, why would you want to sign right now? I like if I'm Taylor Moten, I'm like, I'm hitting free agency. I see that I see all these teams out there with eighty million dollars in cap space. I, I'm not, hey, I'm I'm not only am I a good right tackle. I'm the best right tackle on the market. And so I want to see, you know, maybe can, can I reset the right tackle market? Can I get the biggest deal for a right tackle in NFL history? Maybe. I don't, I mean, I don't know that he can, but you know, I mean, a former Panther got the biggest uh, deal for a guard in NFL history when they left. And I don't think Jacksonville is very happy with that decision. So uh, I think that it's, it's one of those things where I think that, in a, in a perfect world, I think that Taylor Moten does come back, and I think that the Panthers would re-sign him and still may re-sign him for the right price, but ultimately I do think it's going to be all about what that right price is, what that price ends up being. Well, we do have an idea of what the price could be, and that's if Marty Herney, David Tepper, Matt Rule decide ultimately to take the decision out of his hands to go to the free agent market and franchise him. Right. And in, in that case, it would be they, – they're actually projecting that it could go down – um, that it will go down this year because of everything's gone on. It'll be $13 million, according to uh, a projection of around $13 million to franchise it for next year, according to CBS Sports' Joel Corey, who's one of the best at, at the cap stuff. Um, and in fact, he did a piece not that long ago that even mentioned Moten um, as a candidate for this. Um, and, and just I'm just going to rip directly from Joel. He says he could make a good case along with Jack Conklin for being the NFL's best right tackle this season. Conklin is the most recent data point for right tackles, signed a three-year, $42 million con contract containing $30 million fully guaranteed um, with the Browns in free agency this year. So that's the kind of numbers you're looking at if you're trying to sign Moten long-term. I think it, the the franchise decision may come down to to Moten or Samuel. If you're talking about what position's more indispensable, I think you probably do end up on with Moten in that situation. Um, so I think that may very well be the the route we're headed down. Yeah, I just want to be clear. I, I thought they should have re-signed James Bradbury instead of Shaq Thompson in the past, and I think they should re-sign Taylor Moten, even if it does end up costing them thirteen or fourteen million dollars a year the reality is, is I don't think that's going to happen. That's, that's, that's where I'm at right now. And this is a part of, we have to learn Matt rule and what he wants mm -hmm. um, out of this, out of his offensive lineman. Taylor Moten may not look like a Matt rule offensive lineman or what he thinks he wants out of an offensive lineman going forward. There's, you know, different coaches have different flavors when it comes to players and you're going to see, 
you, you, we're going to see what Matt Rule likes. But right now, other than speed, <laughs> he likes him a whole lot. He, here's what he likes out of his offensive lineman. He likes guys that uh, pull their that pull their calf muscles. Uh, he likes he really likes guys that tweet a lot, like a lot, a lot, a lot. He likes alter alternate currency for sure, um, and uh, and distrust of the government. That's what he's looking for. Those are like kind of the big four that he's looking for in his offensive lineman. And so, you know, basically our draft is in great hands. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, 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 don't, I, I don't disagree with you because I think a lot of – we hmm, – I don't know that I really want to get into this particular topic right now because it's like the overarching thing that we'll be talking about for the next six months. But it's like we look at all these things on such a granular timeline that we're like, oh, they got to fix that left tackle spot. And it's like they're – like – you have to give them a little bit of time. And I get it. Left tackle was a terrible example for me to yell because they haven't fixed that for 17 years. No, that's not right. How, when did Jordan Gross leave? Uh, Gettleman forced him out. Remember the, I don't like you very much. Yeah. So, so it was like 13. So seven years they haven't fixed it, but they, they, this, this transition doesn't happen all in one year. Like it doesn't, you don't flop from one coaching staff and one style of play and one team to a completely different team because that's what they're going to end up being by the time that Matt Rule and, and whether it's Marty Herney, whether it's Pat Stewart, whether it's whoever, whether it's David Tepper himself, whoever they are, when they get done with this transformation, they will be a completely different team. The, the keep pounding, let's win these games 12 to 7, that is a thing of the past for the Carolina Panthers, and that you can't all do from – from one year to another. I don't it remember takes, that takes, being the origin of keep pounding. I think keep pounding is not about the run game in 12-7 scores. That's fair. I'm a little hazy on my team history. but Yeah, you're not a big history guy, right? No, not at all. Well, the other thing is that just uh, – <laughs> um, is that, like, David Tepper said it specifically. Like, he said – if you like, he said this is not going to be a one-year process. And now we are 10 games into it and people are calling for coaches jobs. They're, they're saying that, you know, the, they're, they're sick of the process and it, it just takes a little bit more time. And it's the same thing with Herney, honestly. Like I know that everybody's like pushing for him to be fired. It's like, there's 10 get like, he's not getting fired today. I promise. It's definitely not happening. And through the magic of podcasting, we, I, I'm talking to you in the future. He's not getting fired tomorrow either. Um, but if this is a little like transition period between the Marty Herney era and whoever the next era is and the, the Ron Rivera era, Ron Rivera, Dave, Ron Rivera, Jerry Richardson era and the David Tepper, Matt rule era, then if it's a year, if it's 18 months, I, I feel like over the, over the whole timeline, we'll be okay. We're going to be all right. Is there a scenario that both Curtis Samuel and Taylor Moten both come back? Is that possible? I think it would be a franchise and sign. Like for me right now, and, and we don't know what they think of Moten. We've we, we got to wait and see ultimately what they decide to do. I would, I think I would probably just want to check that box and just feel good about that position for another year. Cause like you said, it's not a one year process. So let's just hold off on that right tackle question for another year. It may not be the most fair thing to Taylor Moten. That's the mechanisms in place. I'm not saying I'm, you know, as a Taylor Moten fan, like yay, yay for him, but, I mean, thirteen million bucks for a season is not bad either. For a year, though, like for a like what what's going on in twenty twenty one that we need Taylor Moten here for? Are we just kicking the can down the road on the decision? 
No, it just doesn't have any long-term cap implications for you. I mean, I, I don't like, are there people that, I mean, if you, if you've got a better way to spend that $13 million than a starting right tackle, then okay. Like then let's have that conversation. But like, build I think a, you build a permanent roaring right section. How about, okay. uh, maybe bring the cat eyes back, not the cat eyes, the, maybe the old end zone back. Well, yeah, I think they're just, everybody's just taking it easy, right? On that stuff. Or is this the, is this the new style? I thought it was just kind of a, there's no fans in the stands, take it easy kind of thing. Well, I think they're trying some new stuff out because there's no fans in the stands. I think they're, they're kind of like, well, now's our time. Like let's experiment. You know what they're not doing after touchdowns. They're not boom, boom, bang, banging anymore. And there's, nope. there's, I cut out two booms. I apologize to, uh, boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Kenny, <laughs> Kenny Wayne Shepard. You got that no. on the drop, on the drop no. list. I, I think I should have it, shouldn't I? You should. It, yeah, it should, fine. should be in your speed dial for the top. Can 10. I ask? Cause I know that this is an audio medium. Nikki, are you, are you like, what's happening? You got lights <laughs> in your house? Like it, it just is, I mean, it really is, dark in here. <laughs> It is crazy. It's like, I mean, I know it's, I know it's daylight savings, but like, it's almost, it's like borderline pitch black in your, in your little square. I was actually going to mute myself so I could turn the light on. I keep my blinds closed in the living room now so I can enjoy my Christmas tree during the day. But now it's at that time of the day where now it's really dark in here all of a sudden. <laughs> I mean, it really like, I, I wish that I could show you guys. I might take a picture. It's later. like a transition on mine. Yeah. Like it's daytime here in my yeah. world. It's dusk in your world and it is midnight in Nikki's world. It looks like yeah. I'm filming a hostage video or something <laughs> right now. Hold up the paper. Hold up the sports <laughs> section. We can't tell if you're blinking in code, Nikki, because we can't see your eyes in the shadow of your hat. <laughs> okay, I'm going to mute myself so I can turn a light on. So I'm going to move you guys on. Let's talk about the expectations for this oh, wait, final Wait, wait, wait. I want to talk a little bit more about Curtis Samuel and, and for a oh, second. Oh, okay. Um, Go do ahead. You, do you think, Colin, do you think that he has earned the right to, to come back this season? earn the right to come back well like or the so like do you think that he so at the beginning of the season before the season started everybody wanted him to get re-signed like everybody 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 and my and right. my thing was like i would like to see it or you know either trade him or re-sign him before his value gets too high what do you think that he has done has he done enough this season where you would say he needs to be he needs to be back next year i think it's i think it you can't see it Yes. I mean, short answer is yes. He's done enough. He's earned, to me, he has earned the money he's going to get next year, whether it's here or elsewhere. He has earned that money this year. He is, he has served the role as a tight end. He has been the human flex position. He's, he's, he's been a running back for this team. He's done a lot of things, but you've, you've made a short-term investment in Robbie. Presumably you're going to make a investment in DJ. Can you pay a third wide receiver? And should you pay a third wide receiver? Well, again, I think the part of the question is like, is this the, is this the way that the Carolina Panthers are? Are they a team that pays three wide receivers and the best running back in the NFL? Like, are they that team? They might right. be. They used yeah. to not be that team. They want they want to have a Cadillac on offense, and they're going to piece it together on defense. And they were not. They wouldn't be the first one to have that theory. No, absolutely not. And, and, and I, go yeah. ahead. I was going to say, part of it is, what do they want out of the tight end position? Like, they may see Samuel, because I, with his, the number, the reason I refer to him that way is because of the number of third down catches and him kind of being that safety, you know, um, blanket target for, for Teddy. 
if he if you're not going to be interested in investing in a tight end and you kind of see him as that that third weapon okay i think you can make that case if however he's a third wide receiver and he's not getting the carries because that's you know cmc and you know is taking most of those then it becomes a little bit trickier if you're looking and say you really like the kid out of florida that looks like an incredible tight end i think maybe you don't um you don't pay Curtis Samuel and you try and get cheap, you know, try and get a cheaper version that way. So it'll be interesting. Like I said, this is, this is really going to be, um, you know, the, the period where we learn about what they value. And I can guarantee on at least one guy, not necessarily these two guys we talked about here, but at least on a couple of these guys, they're going to disagree with the Panther fan base. Yes. That, that I think is a foregone conclusion. I think it's, it's, it's interesting the way that you said that because you're absolutely right. You're, this is a time when we are going to learn what this coaching staff values in terms of players, like what they want in terms of players. And, and I think a good example of that, honestly, is somebody like James Bradbury. Like they, obviously that was not the type of cornerback that they wanted, or perhaps they thought to themselves, we don't like to pay a number one. We don't want to have that we don't view number one corner as an elite position, which I think is the wrong attitude to have. And I'm not saying they do, but there are teams that say, okay, the elite positions, of the NFL are quarterback, left tackle corner. Like that's what they say. And maybe Matt rule says, you know what? I, I think quarterback and left tackle are elite, but I also think that we need to have three wide receivers on this team in order to be successful. And so we're going to find that out. And, you know, maybe maybe because of the Luke departure, that, that made him lean towards Shaq more. I also think the lack of interceptions throughout Bradbury's career, if you're going to pay a guy number one cornerback money, um, was, a, was a consideration. And I think based on where this team is, a number one corner would have been a huge waste of money. I mean, if you can ask the question about what does Moten bring next year, then I can definitely ask what the – he might as well just go get sodas with the guy and be like, look, we're just going to take the afternoon off and let him play 10 on 10. Like. If, yeah, I mean, even if he was that player, you know, even if he was Revis. No, and I, and I love James Bradbury, but the reality is, is he would have he would have been a twenty eight, twenty nine year old corner on this team uh, as they're trying. They're just starting to be to round into their comp- competitive window. Um, what do you think is a? But I that I know I went against myself. I do think that that I personally would have liked Bradbury on this team. But yeah, no, and, and I, I yeah. I mean, I like Bradbury. I mean, there's a reason he was, you know, we called him Goatberry. And they, look, he did, he put in some great years. And again, I think that dude earned his check. But uh, if you're paying, if you're going to pay that guy and, and the rest of your defense is going to be what it is, then he's not going to, he's not going to have is, is the same impact that like Burns is, Burns has, you know, a, a pass rusher. Yeah, you're not wrong. What do you think that, so if, if you're Curtis Samuel, if you're Curtis Samuel's agent and I come to you and I say, Hey buddy, um, I want to give you a three-year contract worth um, twenty million dollars. Three years, twenty million, fifteen guaranteed. Are you taking that deal? Nope. No, because I think you can make a very serious case that Curtis Samuel has been better at his job than DJ Moore has been at his. In the sense of when it matters the most, and if you're if you're going to be a number one wide receiver, isn't that isn't that when you go to him when it matters the most? We've seen DJ run the wrong route, and he's got he's got great yards, and over the long haul, he's great. On individual plays, when it's third down, when it's that time, I think Samuel's been better this year. So to me, that number would not I would not be interested in calling you back if that was the number. 
would you have taken that deal at the beginning of the season? Uh, possibly. I mean, I, I, I'll be Maybe. honest with you. I didn't do a Curtis Samuel preseason contract eval. But yeah, probably. You know, you probably would have a three-year deal because this. If this would have been year one, I don't know if I'd have done. Well, I guess. I, you Maybe. might have taken. Uh, uh, you taken it. I'm just we're we're just throwing out numbers. Yeah. My thing is that you're you're going to end up spending. So the the whatever what happens with Curtis, if they say, if they resign Curtis and they don't resign Taylor Moten, the outrage from the fan base is going to be huge because Curtis Samuel is almost certainly going to sign for ten million dollars a year, and then Taylor is going to sign for fourteen million a year, and people are going to say, you know, for four million dollars more, you could have gotten a, a franchise right tackle but that's just not the way that wide receivers are signed. And that's why that's ultimately why they may not sign Curtis Samuel because you, you, if you're that agent and you say no to me offering you that money again, just like with Taylor Moten, Curtis Samuel's going to look out and say, uh, Hey, Jacksonville Jaguars, you know, I'd look what? real good opposite DJ shark. Like just thinking out loud. Like I, I like, I like three years, 45 million. Like, I'd take it. Well, that might be too much for Curtis. I don't think that's out of the question. I really don't think that's out of the question because I think he could be one of your two, you know, your two guys. Um, but that, that's not the role that he's going to be asked to play here. The other thing, too, is with the franchise tag, wide receivers are actually more expensive than offensive line. So you'll actually pay a couple million dollars more probably to keep Samuel, um, even though the two on the market, Moten would get more. So from a bargain standpoint, Moten's the better play there. Also, wide receiver is becoming just as crowded a position mm -hmm. as there is in football. So mm -hmm. everyone I've I've fought the fight on the running back thing, but it's coming for the wide receivers too. And unless mm -hmm. you're in that top 10%, which I think Christian McCaffrey is, if you unless you're in that top 10%, you don't pay those guys. That's the reality of where where you're going with the NFL. I was talking to my friend Vincent Richardson about um, this draft coming up, and he was saying, like, oh, it's a really – this draft class might be stronger than last year's draft class. And I was like, is it possible the draft classes are just getting better in terms of wide receiver? And I was like, and then at certain – like, what point do we hit a tipping point where it's like, okay, so now there are 50 really good wide receivers in the league and there's only 30 teams. So it's like – you know? Yep. And, it's, and you think about the evolution of, of – prep football and the seven on seven these guys are getting more reps they're getting more experience out there and and, and the game is made for them so there there's way more guys getting you know way more opportunities i i don't know if he's gonna be the best wide receiver in the class you know in time but i you can't watch that kid waddle from alabama and not just get excited if you like football it's true <laughs> and he may be what you may go i don't even know where he might go to be honest with you right now but yeah he won't go that high you look at these guys that are uh, – so last year, they we talked a lot about it. They had the most roster turnover in the NFL. This year, they're set to have um, the uh, one, two, three, four, five, sixth most roster turnover in the NFL, including 48.2% of their snaps on offense are unrestricted free agents this year. So you're going to see a lot of turnover. Last year, they put a lot of, they put a lot of young blood into this defense, and so that's why – that a lot of that defense is going to be coming back, but a lot of this offense that you saw this year, they're just not going to be coming back. And I think that might include both Taylor Moten and Curtis Samuel. 
That'd be interesting because haven't we talked about in the past that you, do you want to do a wholesale offensive line change? And maybe they will, but I would think you would want to keep a guy like that in place. And I'm not as high on Moten as, as some people are. I don't, I don't toss the term franchise right tackle around. I didn't know that was a thing until, until this podcast, actually. You can have a franchise anything. You can have a franchise tight end. They got one in Kansas City. That's true. That's true. That's true. All right. Any other thoughts? Curtis Samuel, Taylor Moten? They have a franchise tight end here, too. Ian Hashtag man hurts life. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're just you're just trying to fight him today, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Let's look at now the expectations for this final month. What what should we realistic expectations, I guess we should say for this final month. The expectations for this final month. I think this team I I think they're gonna continue to uh to compete. And I think they're I think one and three is the best case scenario. Yeah, everybody else has got stuff to play for. I think they might get Denver here, but I actually I think they're going to uh, continue to skid out the rest of this one. I don't see a big resurgence coming for this squad. I think two and two is a, um, and I don't know where that second one's going to come from, but I do think it's going to come. I think it's going to be an upset. Um, it would have to well, be. Have because, to be. Have to yeah. be. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, just because I think everybody's going to need it. Like if New Orleans sure. doesn't need it week seventeen, then two and two me all day. Because you know Peyton will love to do that to us. Well, wouldn't they? They would want to. Yeah. They would also have the chance to be, or they will, a hundred percent. They will definitely have the chance to be the first team to sweep the NFC South in the his, in the history of the division. Of oh, the division. Yeah. Mm. So it's never been done before. They're five and zero right now with Week Seventeen at Carolina being the only time that they could uh, possibly lose. And I'm yeah. sure Sean Payton would love to have that on his resume because he's a dick. I just think that Washington – I mean, because here's the thing. Going to Green Bay and beating Rodgers in that bunch, I don't, I don't see that one um, happening. In prime time, Rodgers having a stinker against us. That's the one. I think they're going to win that game. Boom. All right, well, I, I think it would have to be – because I don't see Washington with that defense and that front four and the story of Ron Rivera and everything he's got going on. That's going to be tough. That's – that's an emotion like they're just they might just get emotionally death punched on that one like they just might get punched into the draft season on that one chase young's the real thing that he's fun to watch man yeah do you think he's going to be the defensive rookie of the year no 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 it's definitely jeremy chen wow the very that's very strong thinking uh good for you i'm i'm not (laughs) i I thought you're trying to bait me into into picking the reds or the the football team or uh, what are they called? I don't, I don't, I don't think it's, I think it's like, I, I do think it's like neck and neck. If you yeah. want to talk about expectations for the last four games, I think that is, a, that might be a bigger battle than, than what the Panthers well, are going to win. Actually, that's true. Like that game, if you say like who makes the bigger impact in that game is like the de facto head to head matchup between the two. Um, I would say Chase Young's got a better chance of having two sacks than uh, Jeremy Chen does of having two interceptions against Alex Smith. Mm, that's a good point he could have some sacks against alex smith though probably they should run a couple fake punts in that game i think that's how they that's how they get get chin the ball let him work yeah let him work by the way how's that grease fire in seattle going going great (laughs) they're letting him cook all right (laughs) couldn't happen to a nicer bunch Lord, let's talk about this fourth quarter conundrum. At what point do these fourth quarter issues and the problems become a lingering problem? We just lost Josh. Yeah. So, Colin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, so we have a little bit of a disagreement here because I'm a believer in Matt Rule. I'm a believer in Joe Brady. I think they're very good at their jobs. And I think they're very smart at what they do. Um, and, and some people may disagree um, on this one. But I, I look at this, and I think this team is not tanking, but they are politely letting games slip away. And I think that's a very important distinction, especially if you're trying to uh, build a culture and be a good partner within the league, um, that you, you, you be competitive week in and week out. You deliver a good product um, to compete against the, your opponents. And then maybe in the fourth quarter, in analytics terms, you start tipping the percentages away from yourself. And I think in this first season, this team that – uh, has a has a roster that still needs talent. We're, we're going to shed some talent here. We're going to we're going to need some more. I think this coaching staff has actively been involved in. Uh, it sounds like an accusation, but uh, politely letting games slip away is the way I, I want to say it. It's the way I'd like to word it. Um, is there another is there another way that that could be phrased semantically, or do we don't want to self sabotage? I mean, you could call it self sabotage. You okay. could call it artistically tanking. Um, <laughs> but right. I think, but I again, fancy, I ooh, la di da. But I, I, from a business standpoint, I think there is a real difference. Like when you look, and I know we're going cross sport here, but when you go to look at the 76ers, they sent to their partners four years, their partner teams in the league, a bad product that was not going to compete that was not and that's why that's why tanking is is a real problem within the business of the sport and that but I think what they've done they've certainly been competitive in a lot of games but I think you can look at almost all of the games that they've lost the Tampa Bay uh you know beat down perhaps aside I think you can look repeatedly at ways that they have intentionally tipped the scales against themselves so I guess I guess my my query would be you're you're saying that they have they have intentionally done these things to uh to look rather than rather than the easy answer of first year coaching staff makes mistakes. Yes. You think that that they are not making mistakes they are artfully doing they're making these mistakes on purpose or perhaps are, are they like just taking chances that maybe they're going to, maybe they're going to uh, that maybe these chances, if the chances pay off and they're going to win, but they know that probably their percentages aren't great. And, and you think that they're doing this on purpose rather than just not rather than just not quite being good at this yet. Right. And, and I think, and I think it's, um, it's important because I think Matt Rule, again, I think Matt Rule and Joe Brady are good at this. And, and the coaching staff is good at this. But the fourth quarter stuff that we've seen out of this coaching staff would be in, is inexcusable, in this, especially at a time when apparently Joe Brady's stock, you know, coaching stock is rising when you look back at some at what they've done um, in a lot of these losses. So if I may, I'd like to go through them. And, and I'm not saying every one of them is a felony. I'm not saying every one of them is egregious. I just well, think it that- would have to not be right. If there, if it was egregious, then then it would be then it would be openly, and it wouldn't be right. very artistic. Right, right. So I think we are artistically doing this. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, All right. I, I think that uh, yeah. Give me an example of what you're talking about. Okay. Well, week one, okay, against the, against the Las Vegas Raider. So this um, went back to week one. Like they were, week one, oh. they were like artistically. I'm saying there's a pattern here of either reprehensible play calling or they're 
trying to trying to be but isn't this uh, just sorry i I know you have an example but like isn't this just the speed of the nfl like everyone says the speed of the nfl it takes you a while to catch up to it you're not ready for it you think you think you know how fast it's going to be but it's that much faster and so then when you call a fake punt and you and you're like ah crap i shouldn't have called that fake punt because it didn't work or when you call uh, a fourth and one fullback dive to alex armor because it worked in lsu because your guys were bigger that then you're like, oh, you know what? That kind of stuff doesn't work. Or when you, you know, like. Well, let me, let me, let me give you the examples. And you can tell me if you think that this seems like, oh, wow, they got caught up in the moment. Or maybe, maybe they're, you know, politely letting game slip away. Week one against Las Vegas. Teddy has his last five passes. um, He has completions of 11, which is the last play of the third quarter. 16, an incompletion, a 75-yard touchdown, and a two-point conversion. Those are the last five passes. That was with 829 in the fourth. The Panthers get the ball back down four with four minutes and three seconds to play. They run five straight times, bleeding two minutes and 30 seconds off of the clock. They get the ball across midfield and stop, stop moving it, and then that results in the arm of fake punt. Okay, that's one. Maybe not, you know. Week two. So we, we got conservative late with, with Brady potentially. Um, you know, running the ball a lot late there. Uh, week two, 21, fourth, or 21 straight fourth quarter passes. Well, they were losing that. Weren't they down by three scores in that game in 20- the second half? Two scores in the second half, maybe? They definitely had to, like, fight their way back into that game. I guess yeah. it was Tampa Bay, right? Yeah. Yep, yep. I mean, they, they scored – they were down 21 – they were down 21-7. Mm-hmm. Um, or they, they, they were down 21 nothing, and they scored um, – Chris McCaffrey scored at 8:36 to go. But isn't it? But isn't quarter, it possible? Give it. Give me. Give me one more. Okay. Okay. Um, let's see. Here. I'll tell you. I'll tell you one. Give me the best. Let's the go. best one. The uh, well. The I mean, there's two best ones to be honest. Okay. I think. Uh, week eight against Atlanta. The rush totals for this game: 22 for 147 and, and one touchdown. Mike Davis's last two runs: nine and 12 yards. That was with 10:23 left in the fourth quarter. 13 straight Teddy plays. That's 11 pass plays and two Teddy scrambles. That's a one-score game where they didn't use their first timeout until after the two-minute warning of the fourth quarter. Now, Minnesota, this past this, – uh, the last game. This, is, this one was – I thought this is one of, the, one of the ones that really sealed it for me, to be honest with you. Because, you know, it was the drive before the final drive. They had the ball first and 10 with 312 to go and a three-point lead and get neither the two-minute warning nor Minnesota's last timeout. Then they go, then they, they have the muff pump play. Mm-hmm. And then you you're up three. You have the ball fourth and three. And now you have a decision. We can try and score a touchdown, win this game, build the culture, do all the things that a first-year coach might do, because hey, it doesn't really matter that much. We're not going to the playoffs. Let's let's punch it in. And if you don't, they're either going to go 97, 98, or 99 yards to try and either kick field goal to tie or to beat you. Instead, you kick um, to, to give them 22 yards. You kick to go up six, give them 22 yards of field position on the touchback, and then you repeatedly show Kirk Cousins a three-man front with no potential for blitz, playing eight-man back with day three rookies in the, back, in the defensive backfield. Now, either they are really bad at that, 
or they're artistically doing this stuff? I, I think that it, um, it just it's, it's it a little bit too me. it's just a little bit too conspiratorial for me Why? i think Why? That no, no, i'm showing specifically that they're they're leaning towards pass or they're leaning towards run heavy in these situations and then in a spot where they don't that any coach see any if you're coach, trying to convince me that they're not doing a good job of coaching that's what you're doing you're not convincing me that they're outsmarting their opponent by coaching poorly in these fourth quarters like you're convincing me that they're doing a bad job in the fourth quarter which i kind of already agreed with and I was willing to give them a pass because the speed of the NFL for first year you get better at this kind of stuff you know who's really bad at 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 uh at controlling the clock in his first year Sean mm. McVay awful mm. at it and admitted how bad he was at it he said mm -hmm. he wasn't ready for it and he hired somebody to help him with that that yeah, may be something management. that yeah that may be this something is, that Matt Rule and Joe Brady need well no, that no, may be something maybe no. Joe Brady See, that's is the not thing. that you good with play caller Wait, 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 wait. What? What? Okay. All right. Okay. Why am I am I the one that's stumping for him to get a head coaching job somewhere else? No, but I'm if the consensus is and people think that Matt Rule has done a good job and Joe Brady's a, a, a rising star, a rocketing star. How can you be a rocketing star when I think you have real questions about your play calling? I don't understand why he's a rocketing star. I completely agree with you. Okay. Okay. I, I think that I when you think look it's at the two, that you think that these guys are very bright, and then it gets to the fourth quarter, and they they just. When you but, look at the two assistant coaches, one of them is making chicken salad out mm -hmm. of uh, a bunch of rookie players and day three guys, and the other one has a sixty-five million dollar payroll, and his offense is in the middle of the pack. Which so one? That, that which one the is the rising star? And we've had that conversation multiple times. So then the rising star, your rising star in this case, Phil Snow, showed a three-man. They routinely showed Kirk Cousins they weren't blitzing him. They were playing way, way back, right, playing right into Kirk Cousins' hands. That's if you're going I think to they set up, screw a that up. I think it's a first year head coaching job. Screwed it up. I think that making, no, making no, no, this no, assumption no, 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 that they're doing all this on purpose. No, is just a step, it's just a bridge too don't far. Don't insult them. Stop insulting them. It is insulting to think that Phil Snow doesn't recognize what he's got in that defensive backfield and that the way to beat Kirk Cousins and that offense was to put Troy Pride and these guys in wide open spaces and not try and hurry Kirk Cousins up. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I just, I'm not going to insult Phil Snow to that level. It's fair. Uh, Joshua, any other fourth quarter talk besides, you want to bring up? Besides, if, guys, if Josh is right on this one. Oh, God. Oh, it's, it's not great. <laughs> it's not great, y'all. If you're right, it's not great. But I think I, I, I do believe in, I believe in rule and I believe in Brady. And I, I think, think you can also get better at this kind of stuff. I think you can. I wouldn't, and you know what? And I, I wouldn't be surprised if they got, they got better next year. <laughs> I wouldn't be, you know what? Shockingly they, better. They, Immediately, they, just immediate change. They read, they read some pamphlets. They got some notes this off season and the fourth quarter, they just, they didn't run 21 straight passes with Teddy Bridgewater. It's going to be an, it's going to be an interesting uh, second season to say the least. Because, because again, they like to, they point out Marty Herney, coach rule. We have to figure out how to win games late, but they make it a player focused thing. I think you can make a real case that what we're talking about here, that, that it's really been more coach focused. I, I think the it. fact that they are specific in what they're saying means that they understand what they're doing. And that's my hope because if they're saying that the players need to figure out how to win fourth quarter games while they're not getting the third timeout or the two minute warning with a three point lead and first down and 10 with, 
312 to go. Well, I think they're also saying the coaches need to figure out how to win too. Uh, my hope is that they're artistic, and I hope it's going to pay off for us. I think this. I think what they have done, and what they are doing, is is setting the team. You know, if they if I'm right that they are smart and they're going to lose the promised land and they're not going to do this kind of stuff going forward, I think they've I think they've done well by everybody. And then we'll all enjoy the thirty for thirty that's made about this moment. It'll be artistic, artistic and beautiful to be artistic. Politely letting games slip away. I mean, you know, maybe they thought that the 65-yarder really was going to go. Or the 67. Maybe. maybe. Or maybe we'll just take that 3% chance instead of the PI or something crazy happening. <laughs> just. Um, who would like to play a game? Should we wrap it up with a game? Let's do it. Let's do it. Then we'll get to Big Frank. He's not, yes. that, he's not that big. He's regular-sized. <laughs> he's just medium-sized dog? Yeah. Okay. Um, for the game, actually, uh, a lot of people were upset we didn't do Hornets Corner last time. So let's do Hornets Corner this time. Give me a kind of state of the union. How are we feeling? By special request, Hornets Corner. And I would like to say you can't see it because it's, a, it's an audio medium, but that is a bootleg LaMelo Ball shirt that I bought on Public right after he was drafted. Um, it's uh, – it's surprisingly comfortable and it really shrank in the wash or I put on a little <laughs> bit of that Thanksgiving weight. I'd rather not say which one. Um, is he I'm riding a-, a Hornet or is he part of the No, hornet? he's not riding a Hornet. He's just in front of the Hornet's logo. <laughs> like it's a Griffin. <laughs> yeah. Man, if he was riding the Hornet, <laughs> I may never take, been, I may I never take that the shirt, shirt off. Yeah, exactly. No, I'd have bought that one. Now that's a shirt. My apologies. I, I couldn't tell in the video. <laughs> uh, I want to, um, I want to be clear that I am team Denny for life. And I wish that they had drafted Denny with the third overall pick. Now that they did not, I will put all that. I will put childish things aside and I will uh, get excited to watch this team, which has some playmakers on it. Do I think that they made great decisions for the long haul? Perhaps no. Um, do I think that they made terrific overall decisions? Perhaps no, but you know what? I don't care. I'm excited to see this team on the floor. I want to see, Devon, Lonzo, Lonzo Ball. I want to see LaMelo Ball. I want to see Devontae Graham. I want to see Gordon Hayward uh, healthy for the first six games. And then I want to see um, uh, PJ Washington. I want to see Miles Bridges dunk it a lot. Like, I'm excited. The Hornets are an exciting team right now. And I have not been as excited for a Hornets team like this as I am right now in a really long time. And then when you add on the mint jerseys and the mint floor, I am in all the way. They have the most playmakers they've had in a decade on the floor. We've watched Kimba and the Haystacks for, for way too long. Um, and I'm excited about this team, too. I think they've got, they got all the guys they got in this draft, to me, have a calling card. And, you know, we, we're a team that's got a G League team now. The, the development process, you know, the young guys. I'm a big fan of what I like to call the drafted laters. <laughs> Mount up. <laughs> You talk about Big Vern? Big Vern, Nate Darlin, look, Ziller, all of them. Or what is Zimmer? What's his name? Riller. There you go. Thriller. All Big of them. Nick Richards. And Nate Dog, they about to draft it late. Is that good? <laughs> that was okay. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, that was fun. It was That's a real like young that. team ready to resume. <laughs> oh, man, I'm so glad you didn't have anything week. ready besides that one line. <laughs> Biz was brought back to lead the locker room. <laughs> that Nick is... had to leave so we could have some fun. 
just rolling with the kids. Rollers on the rum. Rome. Rome. I'm, see, that's why I'm not a rapper, because I messed up the last word. That's the only reason. They looked to trade Nothing. Terry. I said, Mitch, what's next? <laughs> <laughs> this is pure poetry. I love it. The it's talent true. on this podcast, it's just it's off the charts. That's true. And I if just you shoot that. like mellow shoots, you ain't going to score the buckets. I just <laughs> love the upside of our big VC. <laughs> also, um, the, the fact, did you guys see that LaMelo um, got some very icy uh, grills today? Uh, oh. yesterday by the magic of podcasting. Um, I, I would encourage you to check them out. I'm sure that the city of Charlotte and Hornets fans will react positively to this, uh, to this development. Um, and will love him and embrace him for his, uh, interesting and exciting personality that he has. <laughs> it's okay well, in the NBA. It's just not when it's your quarterback. I'm just That's honestly like, there you go. <laughs> it's just fun, man. It's just going to be fun. I'm really excited. I, I, I so. wish that they would, Look, I wish the fans were allowed in the, in the, the spectrum center, the spec. I, I really look at Gordon Hayward as what I thought Teddy Bridgewater could be kind of, you know, that bridge quarterback, that bridge guy um, for this team. I think, I think defense is going to be a way bigger concern than, than Gordon Hayward's contract. I, I think this team is set up to be a fun, interesting squad for a while. Uh, if, if they can defend. And if they can stay, I mean, uh, honestly, it's all about uh, Gordon staying healthy. Like if, if Gordon Hayward. Uh, well, and Cody, Cody's staying healthy. Well, I mean, Cody less to me than, than yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I took that seriously. <laughs> um, uh, I think that um, I, I completely lost my train of thought now that I got, <laughs> got dunked on by, uh, by Colin. You want to do some more Warren G lyrics? <laughs> yes uh i saw some twins shooting rocks so i said let's do this no that's not good it's just okay i like it i like it just keep going i want you guys to work on this all week this will be your homework and see what you come up with for next week maybe the game next week could be y'all have a rap battle oh no we're not gonna do that <laughs> who could we bring on who would be a good uh special guest let's hear it tweeters Put it out there. Who who you think we should bring in for the for the rap battle? Um, I feel like we're gonna get some terrible answers, so I'm pretty excited about that. Coming up right after this break, uh, you will hear Colin and I talking to Frank Frigo, uh, co-founder of Edge Sports, and uh, we hope and encourage you to stick around. Nikki, goodbye. We love you. Mwah. We are back. Welcome to the show, please. Obviously, Colin is still here. Okay, Colin. Hello. Oh, see, so you could have talked because you've already been introduced, so it's fine. It's, oh, that's uh, right. It's, it's that's confusing right. after the when we come back from break. But uh, joining us now, signing a one-day contract to join the show, is from edgesports.com, Frank Frigo, uh, co-founder, just one of the smartest guys on the internet, and, and he's... Uh, Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on the show with us. Well, thanks for having me. What a kind introduction. <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to ask you, I'll just get right into the, the, the questions here. So Edge Sports, you guys do, um, you obviously do a ton of analytics, a ton of breakdowns, but one of the things that just came out last week is your coach rankings. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, about you know what, let's actually, let's not jump ahead to the coach rankings. Tell us a little bit about Edge Sports just in general. Sure. So, so Edge Sports was, well, so 
Edge Sports is part of Edge Analytics. We, we've been as Edge, this is our eighth year, but even predating the formation of Edge, one of the original founders, Chuck Bauer, who is a physicist, uh, he he's a, was a researcher at Indiana University. He and I, going back a number of years from there, had started dabbling really as a labor of love, looking at the decision-making of coaches in the NFL. I was, a, I was a commodity trader for 20 years. I worked in the energy space. Chuck was working as a research physicist. The commonality was that we're both pretty serious games players. We both played uh, backgammon, of all things, professionally. And there have been tremendous advancements in uh, neural nets that in basically all skill-based games, uh, the, the bots now play better than the humans. I mean, right down the line. Um, chess, backgammon, go, a lot of the variations of poker. And there were a, a great amount of lessons that came out of that about how you look at the decision-making of games. And it sounds kind of strange to compare football, which is athletes running around on a field to pieces on a game board, but there's actually a lot of great lessons that came out of that. And, and that is around the idea that if you can objectively look at win probability as a metric or game winning chance, GWC as we call it, where that is the primary objective and you're not concerned about the final score difference, you're not concerned about what you have to say to the press on Monday morning, a lot of counterintuitive ideas emerge because you're not as concerned about embarrassing failures on a given play and so forth. And you start to learn that there's a lot of really interesting ways that you can improve uh, win probability. So we took these ideas and built a very early crude model that could simulate a football game. So I knew that Chuck, um, as a physicist, had the ability to build simulations because he had been doing it for a lot of other purposes. Um, and we built a very early model. Our, our, our hypothesis was that coaches were bad and, and, and risk averse in the NFL at these types of decisions. Good hypothesis. Um, yeah. And, and then our aha moment was that they were actually worse than we originally thought. And they were like, oh, this is interesting. They're going to like roll out the red carpet for us. Because <laughs> uh, you know, I came from a trading environment where, you know, if I go to a fund manager and I've got a, a trading strategy that can make more money, they're, they, they want to talk to you. They want to put money. And I was thinking, well, you know, these are multi-billion dollar businesses. It's going to be the same thing in the NFL. It's a very different culture, right? Um, so it, it's, it was kind of an interesting ride in that we – um, we built these models. We could sort of prove what coaches were giving up in certain types of decisions. We consulted with a number of teams, but we couldn't really get them to embrace us in the way that we had hoped, I mean, to pay our price tag and so forth. And somewhere along the way, um, some folks in the sports betting community, particularly abroad um, in legal jurisdictions, wanted to buy our analysis because part of what we were doing was assessing live win probabilities. So in very unique uh, junctures of the game, we could simulate what the likely win probability of the outcome is gonna be. And there's markets that trade on that. I mean, the biggest market, sports betting market in the world is in running soccer, where they actually trade win probability as a basically a commodity. Um, hmm. And that is now emerging in the United States as well. Um, and that'll become a bigger market over time. So we sort of shifted gears along the way, but we never completely disconnected from the NFL um, because 
this is a very valuable tool and it provides insights around, you know, how coaches make decisions. So we started doing some work for various folks in the sports media and, you know, um, so anyhow, this was, this be, started as a labor of love. We got enough going on with some consulting that Chuck left the university and started doing it full time. And then sometime later I joined and then we formed edge sports about eight years ago uh, with another partner, Sean O'Leary, who is now our CEO. And we got involved in a whole bunch of different stuff, both sports consulting and even some non-sports work. So we do a lot of data analysis in, in other industries as well. But we have our, our hearts are very much uh, in the sports space. So anyway, that's kind of the quick history of Edge, how we get to today. And, and as we stand today, we still do consulting in the sports industry, the sports betting industry. Um, we definitely license our technology every year to NFL teams. We've worked with some of the best analytic staffs. Um, we still do work in sports media. We've even developed a tool that uh, serves high school coaches. Because the great thing is in high school, they can actually use it live on the sideline, which you're prohibited from doing in the NFL. So in the NFL, we have to develop charts and we do post-game and pre-game analysis. But in, in high school, they can use it live, which is great. So it's actually a better tool for the high school coaches. But anyway, that's, that's where we stand. That's sort of how the company came about. And, and everyone's you, definitely following that rule. No one is no one is probably running stuff during those three hours in all the offices in the stadium. No team are doing that. Definitely not. <laughs> NFL uh, classic rule followers, a hundred percent of yeah. the time. So, some teams don't have someone to look at the replay monitor, and other teams have people <laughs> that are running analytics behind closed doors that they're not supposed to. I mean, no, they're following the rules. You mentioned you mentioned gaming, Frank. I want to ask one thing about this. One thing about football versus like poker, where it's like, hey, I have a stack of chips. I'm going to be here for eight hours or whatever. The analysis is different. Whereas if you're a fourth, you're, you're a coach on fourth down and you got one crack at it. Like is, is the analysis from the, from the, from your guy's side different based on the fact, like the number of reps or is it, or is it, is it just that it plays out the same over long haul? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good point. I mean, you know, there's always the question of statistics significance and the underlying assumptions. So, Football is such a complex game because almost any situation that you see in the play-by-play -play has probably never occurred before. If you think about all the things that go into our simulation model, it's who are those, those teams, offense, defense, pass, rush, special teams. We configure for all of that. We configure for venue. Then where's the ball located? What's the clock? How many yards to first down? What's the overall ball position? What's the score difference? What's the timeout configuration? That's a combinatorial explosion when you think about all of those variables coming together. You've really never seen those situations before. You've got good reference points in the empirical, the historical data, and we rigorously test against that. We know our win probability model is good because we calculate it against a lot of historical data. But at the end of the day, I mean, all these situations are unique, and it's, it's hard to say what the win probability is in a given situation that you've never seen before if, if what you're doing is looking in the rearview mirror and trying to find it out of a historical database. But if you can construct a simulation model, you can do a much, much better job. So in the more common situations, we can look and compare the historical data, and then we trust our model in some of the more unique um, situations. So... The other thing I want to emphasize, though, is there's sort of two different standards. When I talk about like the sports betting industry, there's great concern there for absolute value. Like if we say 
you know, right now this team against this team in this situation is 63% to win. That's really important. They care, you know, how finely tuned that is because there's a lot at risk. When we look at decision-making, it's usually on the relative merits of the decision. So we try to make the best possible underlying assumptions, but at the end of the day, you're really concerned about the delta, the difference between the two. So if you if, if your underlying, we think our underlying assumptions are very good, but if they happen to be skewed or off by a little bit in one direction, it tends to affect both sides of the decision tree a little bit. And you can still be very good at capturing what the difference is between the choices. And I can give you some examples of that. Uh, is, is this a situation where like you guys run a, so like a specific situation 10,000 times and see what happens each, you know, each one of those times and kind of that's how you gain that knowledge. Exactly. So if we're looking at say a fourth and short at, at midfield, for instance, and we can, our, our default is 100,000 simulations. So we can run these in a, in a matter of seconds. So when we run 100,000 simulations, those are 100,000 unique game logs that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference from an actual game log. Um, when, so on a fourth and one, we might say, okay, based on, you know, if it's the Carolina Panthers, based on their configured customized rushing offense, they run a, uh, they, they rush the ball on, on fourth and one. Okay. And within that, there is a, there's a distribution that occurs. Sometimes they convert exactly a yard. Sometimes they get tackled behind the line of scrimmage. There's some minority of occurrences where there's a turnover. Sometimes they break for a long gain or we capture that distribution curve. The game is played to conclusion, running clock, timeouts, everything. That's all built into the simulation. So we'll run a hundred thousand where the rush is the first play. And then we'll run 100,000 where we do a punt. And again, we've got a punting distribution around that based on the strength of the punter, ball position, the likely starting position for the opponent. And it'll run all of those configurations. And even, you know, even things like bad snaps, um, you know, uh, of course, touchbacks, a, a long gainer, you know, a return for a touchdown, all of that stuff is factored in with the, with the right kind of, of frequencies. So you go 100,000 down path A, you go 100,000 down path B, and you can do a comparative analysis of what produces more wins on average. So, you know, if, if we think there's a 6% difference and you were getting 6,000 more wins down one path than the other, basically, is what's happening. So like, for instance, just to like bring this like full, full circle to, to something that, that listeners recognize. So you had in this most recent game against the Minnesota Vikings for the Panthers, they had a, uh, they had a fourth and goal at the three yard line. Um, and they were up by five or up, they were up by three. four or they were up by three. I'm sorry. They're up, they up by, by three. three. They're up by three. They chose to kick the field goal instead of going for it. Um, before you tell us what the what the simulation said, I asked Matt Rule about it, and he said that essentially if it was fourth and two, the analytics told them to go for it. And if it was fourth and three, they told him to kick. Now, he said it was a little bit more complicated than that, obviously, but that was kind of where, what it came down to. And he, he went through, he talked a lot about how um, Taylor Rajak, who is their director of analytics is there. He's on the headset. He's telling him before the drive, here's what we can do. Um, including before that on third and three, 
instead of uh, instead of running the ball twice to try and get it in, try and pick up that first down or get it in, they threw a pass. They got caught up debating whether they wanted to throw a pass, which then stopped the clock. Whole lot of stuff that that when you're doing simulations, it seems like the computer would be like, well, I'm not going to throw a pass. <laughs> it's a running clock. Um, I'm going to get the timeout or the two-minute warning. The computer's like, look, nobody's not going to get one of these. Um, but that, but that was kind of how it came about. So when, when you did the, when you ran those through the simulation, what did, what did, uh, what did your, what did it say? Okay. So when we ran that one through the simulation based on what we thought were the, the best available assumptions around who those teams were offense and defense, we had it as about a 13% game winning chance there, which is pretty substantial. Okay. Now you can debate, they could debate. Coach Rule could debate about what, you know, whether that was really 13% or not. But at the end of the day, you're trying to make these choices, you know, path A versus path B. Is it going to produce more wins, right? So we're looking at this as, as a go. We can look at it as a rushing play. We can look at it as a passing play. We can look at it as a field goal. The part of our model that I think is really the most powerful piece of it is that we can stretch the underlying assumptions. So inevitably we get all kinds of naysayer arguments. Somebody will say, eh, we weren't rushing the ball very well that day or their defense was stopping us dead or, you know, it was a little wet. Uh, our field goal kicker, you know, was out late last time. He'd come up with a number of different, you know, naysayer arguments. The beauty of a simulation model where it's not just a lookup table is that we can reset any of the underlying assumptions and that's exactly what we do. So when we consult with teams, one of the, the standards that we put on our recommendations and our analysis is that we come up with almost ridiculous counterarguments. So in a situation like this, we can go back and say, let's make the Panthers the worst rushing and worst passing team in the NFL. Let's make the opposing defense the best rushing and passing defense in the NFL. And we could rerun the simulation. Now, as you'd expect, it'll reduce the magnitude of the error that the model is recognizing it won't say it's 13% anymore. And I, I off the cuff can't remember how much it would drop by, but it'll, it, it might cut it in half. Okay. If I could just stop so, you, I'm sorry. When you say 13%, yeah. what is that? What is that 13%? Just to, just to explain it to the listeners. Is, is game winning chance expectation. So it's saying that in this situation, if they were to um, go for it, I, and I can't remember the distinction here between the pass and the rush, but going for it versus kicking the field goal resulted in, in our simulation in about 13% more wins on average. Gotcha. Okay. okay yeah. That, that, that was, I... And if you think about how big that is, if you had one 13% error per game in a 16 game regular season for an average NFL team would cost you two games. I mean, these are really chunky, you know, differences. I, yeah. You know, um, but when you, but, we inevitably get these counter arguments like, well, if it was fourth and three or fourth and two, we might've treated it differently. And we have all these other, you know, nuanced considerations of how we're behaving. And we get that, right. We're, we may not be aware of everything a coach is aware of on the field, but these are decision support tools. So when we twist the assumptions, like I said, if we reduce the offensive capability and increase the defensive capability, we can go beyond reasonable counter arguments just to see if the, if it upholds. And that's what, that was one of the biggest discoveries we had when we did this many years ago is 
coaches or naysayers coaches have a tendency to cherry pick. They want to say, well, we couldn't go for it because our offense wasn't doing what it needed to do. We didn't have the confidence. But oftentimes there's a lot of game left and they're going to end up placing that same offense that they were concerned about in that particular problem they're going to have to rely on them again in the future. So our model can treat any, we can set it to any offense you want, any defense you want, but that's who you are for the remainder of the game, not just for that play. And that's where I think we're being much more objective than what you know, a coach on the sidelines has a tendency to, to second guess their offense here, but then they're hoping they get a defensive stop and get the ball back. And now they trust their offense. So that's kind of the, the objectivity and the beauty of models is that you can do those sorts of sets and, and see how much they, they, they affect an outcome. Frank, a lot of people that listen to this podcast know that I'm, I'm, I'm always skeptical of analytics, but listening to you talk about this, one of the things that bothers me when I, when, about the publicly accessible analytics or whatever, is it, all, it always seems like it comes down to versus league average. But what you're talking about is, is specifically looking at teams and their strengths and their weaknesses and then being able to uh, you know, adjust for that. How much variance is there between individual teams and the league average, which oftentimes gets used as, I mean, and I know that that's a broad question. It's not like there's a percentage answer here, but I'm just curious because you've, you've multiple times mentioned specifically like tailoring it to the teams. Um, so I'm just curious how, how different the, the yeah, numbers I mean, would be for teams. I, so I could give you an example of it. And these are the kinds of things we can test. Um, if you took a league average team in all respects, you know, a true eight and eight, uh, expected NFL team and all you did was say leave everything else equal but I'm gonna ratchet them up with the best quarterback or the worst quarterback or the best passing game or the worst passing game you might get something on quarterback alone you might get something in the vicinity of four games you can go from about six and ten to ten and six and, and that, that's sort of the biggest knob that you can you know, you can, you can turn. Um, so you can imagine those kinds of things affect um, how likely, you know, we, we think a team is to be successful in a short yardage situation, right? Um, so, it, I mean, I'm just trying to give you a sort of an extreme example of how much variance there might be at the start of a, at the start of a season. So if you think about, um, you know, if you're getting two extra games a year, what are you getting? You're getting, um, you know, an, an, an additional, you know, 12% or something like that per game or some, something in that vicinity. Am, am I correct to assume, based on what you were just talking about, the quarter, that a good quarterback can win about four games? Like, is that kind of what like, – The delta between sort of a high-end quarterback and a low-end quarterback. So I would say, like, average to high might be in the vicinity of, of two. I mean, there's some debate on this, but our studies have shown that it might be somewhere in the vicinity of two of two games to go from league average to high, but with four to go from across the full, full range. Wow. That's, and that's really surprising that. So from a league average or from a bad quarterback to a good quarterback is kind of a four game average, everything else staying the same or a four game. Delta. That, to me, that to me is incredible. Like that, that just that number alone, Frank, like, because, you know, here in Carolina, we, we, we lived through the Cam Newton era and Cam became the alpha and the omega. And it was like, 
15 and one was all cam. You know, this was that four games, depending on whether you're bringing in, like that says to me a lot about how much a team, a quarterback could actually impact the team. I think that's, I think that's an incredible number. And and we want to be respectful of the fact that there's synergies, right? You know, quarterback doesn't operate in isolation. Of course, of course. Teamwork and, and all that, but, but is an approximation just to kind of give a, you know, give a feel for it. Um, you're not going to get that much on other positions, right? And and that's why when we talk about these fourth downs, when somebody gives up 20% on an individual fourth down, you'd be hard-pressed to find a player that gets you, you know, 0.2 games a season and that's not in one of your really sort of primary key positions, right? That's why this stuff still matters so much. And that's where you get to the whole running backs don't help you win kind of <laughs> arguments and things like that. <laughs> Is, I'm gonna check the AFC playoffs real quick. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is there is there a specific coach or or I guess maybe not even coach, maybe it's franchise in general that you've seen kind of lead the league or or be better than um, than the rest of the league in terms of coaching decisions, utilize like using this stuff to be correct. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, you, you know, we've got these coaches rankings that we just came out with our first. Mm-hmm. Uh, edition of them I oh mean, we're going to talk about them frank don't yeah, worry about that so um yes i mean certainly there are there are you know they're all a little bit erratic at times just when you think somebody's got it figured out they'll, they'll do something that's a bit of a head scratch like andy reed's been really good this year but a week ago in, on the opening drive of the game from like a foot out they flunked twice and he kicked a field goal which surprised us quite a bit right because we know those guys <laughs> They, they get analytics, um, but you know, every coach is susceptible to a lapse in judgment or playing results and, and so forth. Um, but, you know, there's, there's definitely a few people that kind of emerge as very good um, decision makers. I mean, Harbaugh, he was our coach of the year last year. He's, he's been really good. Um, you know, Frank Reich has really emerged as somebody that really gets it. Um, you know, and then there's, you know, then there's some surprising folks. And again, we can kind of talk about it in the context of the coaching, but like people like Pete Carroll, surprisingly is not as good at this stuff as a lot of people think he might, he might be. Um, Sean Payton is, you know, has a, I mean, obviously, you know, New Orleans is a very good team, but as a pure, um, you know, sort of critical call decision maker has really not been as good this year as in, in some prior seasons. Yeah, I just uh, – so looking at – so you guys rank coaches. You have your coaches ranking there on edgesports.com. Um, they, you update them week by week, correct? We will now, yeah. Three, yes. Again, after week 16, we will announce our coach of the year. So you guys do – you you do them uh, in two different ways. They're kind of split into one, – one of them is the critical calls index, which I think is the most interesting one. Um, it's based on – just what we were talking about, what you do on these critical fourth downs, these critical plays that, that can move the needle in terms of a game. And I, and uh, Matt rule, uh, head coach of the Carolina Panthers is ranked 30th out of 32 coaches. And I do think it's interesting that you bring up some of these other guys that are also ranked really poorly, because I just want to talk about the bottom four on the list. Sean Payton is at 32. Sean McVay is at 31. Matt rule is at 30. And then Pete Carroll is at 29 three out of four of those, obviously people would call maybe the best coaches in the league. What is it about them that, that kind of drops them down to the bottom of this seat of this critical calls index? Yeah. So this is just specifically on the critical call side, which is half. Right. Of the field, yeah, right? exactly. Um, so there's a couple of things going on. I mean, one is 
sometimes I think there's a bias that coaches that have good teams sort of expect to win and they have sort of higher regret on these higher, more highly leveraged decisions at times, especially if they're playing a weaker opponent. They think they're just going to win over the long grind and maybe they are and they're, they might be more likely to get conservative. But there's another thing going on, um, which is that really good offenses tend to be put in situations that we think they should be aggressive more often. So sometimes they're getting into a more difficult test. And that's what was so special about a guy like Harbaugh last year is amazing offense. So there be, he's under a greater scrutiny because there's a lot of plays, a lot of critical calls where we think they should be going for it where a lot of coaches wouldn't do it and he's doing it in his own territory. And he's, he's actually, he's got a very powerful offense and has a low error rate, which is a hard combination. That's usually what'll get you very, you know, very far off on our list. But um, yeah, that's, um, you know, it, it does seem surprising and it seems a little sacrilegious to see somebody who's got a great team at the bottom of the list, but it does happen. But is that something, do you see, uh, and I know that you have the, the data that goes back a little bit further than, uh, you know, as far back as, as we can think about, but um, do you see coaches get better or do they kind of like, they don't change their stripes, if that, if that makes sense? Or uh, get better, maybe not the right term, but. Yeah, I think some have gotten better over time, but we've actually seen the opposite. I, I, think, I think Sean Payton has regressed. I think Bill Belichick has regressed right? Um, Pete Carroll, we, to some degree. So it, it doesn't always, they, they don't all sort of evolve in the same way. Um, you know, some, some coaches, I mean, they're going to make adjustments for the team that they're coaching or the talent that they have in a particular year, but, but there's also the possibility that they make over adjustments for that as well. So I don't know that there's a real clear pattern. I think the league as a whole is accepting analytics more and there's definitely a shift towards understanding this better and, you know, the overall cumulative errors, you know, average for the league, I think we're seeing improve a bit, but there's still a tremendous amount of room for improvement. The other half of your equation, the, the EPI rank, I'm interested in the EPI rank. Okay. So the EPI is the edge power index. And as you guys may know, we, we own football outsiders. So we're huge fans of outsiders. I mean, they're real pioneers, Aaron Schatz, real pioneer of football analytics and his proprietary metrics like DVOA, you know, mm -hmm. defensive value you know, over average, um, defense adjusted value over average. Um, so that is incorporated into the edge power index. So those rankings put a lot of team performance in context. It accounts for, you know, traditional NFL statistics don't distinguish uh, picking up yardage and garbage time or picking up yardage against a very weak opponent. But Aaron in his metrics puts a context around, you know, you get more value out of picking up three yards on a third and two than you do on a third and six. Right. Um, and we find that this has really good predictive quality where we, when we measure teams off of these um, performances, these abilities to execute, we have a better idea of, of who they are. And this gets better and better as the season goes on. And this is one of the reasons that we wait several weeks before we actually release our initial coaches ranking, because we want it to crystallize a little bit and have coaches 
you know, have an opportunity to make a lot of decisions and we start to get a better idea of who their team is. But we, what we do with the, with the power index is we take, so, so we customize each team in our simulations for offensive, defensive, pass, and rush, and, and of course, special teams. And we take the DVOA ratings and that, that goes into the uh, adjustments and the parameters of the customizations. And then what we effectively do is play like a round robin tournament. We allow all of the teams to play against a league average opponent and see who posts the best records. And that's what effectively creates these rankings. But we felt it was really important to break the coaches ranking down into two classes. One, on the, on the critical call index, that's what our technology is uniquely well suited to measure. And we know that that matters a lot. An average NFL team might give up about three quarters of a game season on, on critical calls, fourth down. Some of the worst performances will be up around a game and a half, 1.6 games. The best teams might be down at 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.4. Um, so we know that matters a lot, but because that's measured pre-snap, we don't play results. It's based on the best available information at the time of the fourth down decision that's 100% attributable to the coach, right? I mean, when the coach makes that decision, we're grading them on their decision, not on what transpires after the ball is snapped. Sometimes coaches are on the headset with other coaches while their teams are performing a, a zero blitz, though, and, you know, and, and they have to fire the defensive coordinator next day. But most times the head coach is aware. I will agree with that. Yeah, was that a was that a hundred percent GWC on that on that rushing seven when you're up by four with three seconds left? I had to turn the, had to turn the monitor to vertical for that one. I think I watched that replay several times, and I'm just going to refer to that as bizarre. I'm not really sure what the motivation was there exactly, but that was a very strange uh, configuration. I can think of the motivation. He's got long, flowing blonde hair. Uh, <laughs> starts with T. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I think the, the way that, so one of the things that I think that football outsiders edge sports, the, the analyst, the movement in general has been really, has been really impressive and at making fans smarter. Whereas, uh, you know, I, I do feel like, you know, five or 10 years ago, if you wanted to get to this information, you could probably find it if you really, but now it's kind of, it's out there. You hear people talking about DVOA constantly and, and referencing, you know, referencing uh, GWC and, and kind of where these, like how much, uh, how much these critical fourth down calls make a difference. And, and I really, I know I appreciate it because it does, because there are times on Sunday when it used to be like, man, that was such a stupid call. And then you look and you're like, oh, it was a stupid, like you kind of reward yourself <laughs> by, by, by the experts telling you that you're right. Well, it's good to hear that because that's, that's definitely what we're, what we're after. Um, you know, the other thing I wanted to say about the coaches rankings is, so fourth downs are really interesting because they matter a lot and it's hundred percent attributable to the coach. So that's why we, we look at this. have to do something. Good at measuring. But we also recognize that's not all what a coach is about, right? They've got to be able to put a quality product on the field. They need, need to be able to motivate those players. There's a lot of other decisions that take place. And they've got to be able to execute very well in, in certain situations. And that's where the DVOA and the Edge Power Index comes into play. So we weight those two things together. And that's where you see an enigma like Sean Payton, who's, you know, 
of one and a 32 and comes out at an average of a 16 and ends up in the middle of a pack does, you know, has a really good product, but is not such a great decision maker with that. I mean, you know, we, we like to joke sometimes there's certain coaches, you know, we, we say this about Tony Dungy when, you know, with Peyton Manning, that he would drive a Ferrari like a Volkswagen, you know, like you have these, you have these abilities to really put this to work and then you get very, very conservative. And, and I think that's where people like, you know, Harbaugh and, and Andy Reid do a very good job with, with what they have of, of knowing how to really use it. Is it always too conservative or does it sometimes kind of swing the other way where it's almost like, because my, so I always feel like, and this is, I know this is incorrect, but my always thought is like the analytics always say, go for it. Like fourth down, fourth and four, good, get out there, keep the offense out there, which is obviously not the case. Um, is there, a, is, there, is there a product of, of going too far the other way as opposed to being too conservative? There can be, but you don't see it very often. And it, hmm. it, it, I mean, it's a broad brush stroke. You definitely, definitely do better by being more aggressive across the board. But these tend to be really complicated decisions. So they're not all the same. I mean, there are, there are times when it's not right to be aggressive or where it's very close. Um, but there's a lot of really counterintuitive ones where no one would, and we point these out every week. Like I, I write this column, Risky Business, and you know there, there, are, there are some that pop up where you'd be like, that just bucks conventionalism. There's no way in the world anybody goes for it in their own territory with a lead <laughs> late in the game. Like that just defies all you know, rules of thumb. But it, you can actually... I mean, again, you can go in, you can simulate it, you can twist the assumptions, and it's amazing how it actually shows that you win more often when you do this. You might look foolish a whole bunch. You might be a favorite to fail on that particular play, but that's not what you're after. The real metric is winning more games. It's not what the final score is, and that's, that's where the model doesn't care, and that's what we learn from the modeling of other games is that when that's your primary metric, and you don't care about the score difference at the end, it, it, it shows you, it, it reveals some things that you didn't expect. Frank, I'm curious as someone that's been, been studying this for, for a long time, it used to be the old saying was like, if you, get, if you can run the ball for three and a half yards, three times, you'll get, you'll get that next first down. Now we're to a point where you want to avoid third downs at all costs, or you, you know, good offenses will try and keep it on first and second down. Are there other kind of foundational beliefs that you feel like you've seen kind of emerge while you've been doing this? Well, I think the one thing, and I think the Eagles did this really well on, on their Super Bowl run, and we, and we were working with them at the time, um, is that when you know that a fourth down is a viable option in advance, it changes your third down play calling, right? A lot of coaches conventionally say, well, you know, it's third and long. We've got to pick up the full third down. But if you can go right up to the line of scrimmage and already know in advance that your fourth down is a go if you get it inside of a couple of yards because you have the analytics, it opens up your play calling a lot more. And I mean, if you, you know, in that season, there were definitely some instances where they were rushing the ball on third and long because they knew they were going to go for it on fourth down and the, and the, you know, and the defense was expecting, you know, the medium pass. So I think that's, that's certainly, um, you know, one area. Yeah. That was going to be kind of my question. If you had one specific thing that you could recommend just across the board for a team to do, whether it was like second and long, don't ever run the ball 
you because that that to me is is what I get the most frustrated about when it's second you throw you go you throw incomplete on first down so then you're like second down we got to pick up two yards here and shorten up these sticks and it's yeah. like that it just makes it worse. My my biggest pet peeve, which, which exposes like a classic sort of cognitive bias among coaches, is when someone will be in a third and short or, you know, third, say third and two situation and they're in reasonable field goal range. And they tend to account for, they've already scored the three points in their head. Like we're going to do no worse than three here. And they take a shot at the corner of the end zone, a very low percentage pass because they for sure don't want to throw an interception because they've already, they've already chalked up the three points. So you can't give that away. So what they end up doing is missing an opportunity on third down and then missing an opportunity on fourth down subsequently kicking the field. So they basically gave up two chances to, to convert and boost their win probability. That's probably the one that, that rubs me the, the worst. If you're listening, NFL offensive coordinators, and I know Joe Brady, you, you've been waiting for me to give you this advice. The fade, take it out of the playbook. Like the fade is just – just it's got like there is no there is no situation where the fade works in college it used to work all the time because you had a guy that was five inches taller than the corner because you're playing against east louisiana but like (laughs) the fade take it out you can't do it anymore is that is that really the pass route that needs to go first i feel like the eight yard curl on third and ten is the first one that Mm. needs to go out (laughs) uh Frank, thank you so much for for joining us. We really appreciate the taking the time. Yes. Um, Edge Sports, uh, honestly, Edge Sports, the the risky business column that you put out every is it every Monday you put it out, even with the yeah. Monday and Tuesday night games. Uh, yes, usually we try to get it out. Try to get it out on Monday. So yeah, ask them what's normal in twenty twenty, Josh. Yeah, exactly. Set them up for success there. <laughs> Uh, every Monday it comes out and it's literally one of my favorite things to read because it just is like, cause if you can't, if you don't watch the entire slate, sometimes you're like, Oh man, I totally miss what Joe judge did in New York or, uh, you know, usually it's a New York coach. I'm just assuming, um, that makes a bad decision. But Frank, uh, is there anywhere else that, that you'd like people to, that our listeners to go, uh, to go check out? Well, I mean, definitely edgesports.com, edjsports.com, and, of course, footballoutsiders.com. There's a great amount of content to go get geeked out on as much as you want. Yeah. What does Matt Rule need to do to move up from 30th in the coaches' ranking? Well, I mean, you know, they're going to have to probably execute a bit better to to certainly improve on the EPI, right? It's going to help. That revolves around talent. But I think, you know, just – I think, yeah, just a better sort of – understanding of analytics. I mean, you know, it's one thing to have an analytics staff. It's not one thing to understand it, but you've got to have the courage to be able to implement it. And sometimes that requires a GM or an owner who has their back and says, do the right thing. If it's mathematically sound, do it. I'm not going to second guess you, but that's a hard thing for coaches to do sometimes, especially when they're young coaches, because they, you know, they don't want to be, they don't want to look crazy in their, you know, in their early stages of their career. Uh, I know we started wrapping it up, but you know the we do have an owner in Carolina that's very analytically uh, analytically driven. Certainly, uh, certainly in the uh, economic forum for sure. So maybe that'll be somebody that brings it in. There you go. Awesome, uh, Frank Frigo. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we will see all of you guys next week. Colin, thank you for being here. Nikki, we love you so much. You're not here. Oh, but, uh, beautiful. Oh, Nikki, you're the best. Uh, Frank Frigo, your one day contract is 
up. Thank you. All right.